Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. As a recent college graduate, Stephanie Fu was a fan of the radio show, This American Life. She liked it so much that she started her own podcast. It was called Get Me on This American Life. Four years later, Stephanie landed her dream job on the show, but she found herself with a verbally abusive boss. Around that same time, she was also trying to come to terms with the impact of her childhood traumas, years of physical and verbal abuse and neglect. So she left her dream job by telling her boss, quote, healing needs to be my job now. This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This hour, journalist Stephanie Fu talks about her diagnosis of complex post-traumatic stress disorder and how trauma is treated in the U.S. Her book is What My Bones Know, a memoir of healing from complex trauma. A special note to our listeners, this episode contains discussions of trauma, abuse, and mental health. Stephanie, welcome to Disrupted. Thanks so much for having me. I want to start at the basics because some of our listeners may hear that title, Healing from Complex Trauma, and may not be aware of what complex post-traumatic stress disorder is or CPTSD. So for those listeners, how would you define that? Yeah, so um, traditional PTSD can occur when um, you're exposed to a single trauma. So you can get PTSD from, for example, being in a car crash. Um, Complex PTSD is when the trauma happens many, many times over the course of multiple years. So it would be like if you got in a car crash every week for three years, Um, which unless you're very, very lucky is very unlikely unless um, you're being hurt by somebody that you know or you love. So a lot of it, a lot of complex PTSD is caused by child abuse, domestic violence. Um, It can occur from living in a war zone. Um, And so it does sort of damage um, your ability to trust other people. This is a book that you've written that is very well researched, very well documented, brings together different threads from research, from medicine, but also from personal experience. And so for our listeners, I'll just say this is a very difficult memoir to read because parts of it felt so familiar. And then there were parts of it that was also this realization of here is this person who has gone through so much and is willing to share that in not only their own journey of healing, but also encouraging others on their own journey. What for you was this complex, perpetual traumatic stress that you were enduring that then led you to share your journey? You know, I wasn't aware that I had complex PTSD until I was 30. Um, I suffered from pretty extreme child abuse and abandonment. And I thought that I sort of had anxiety, depression related to it um, for my entire life until I sort of got to the point where I was having kind of a complete nervous breakdown at work. (laughs) Um, And I realized 
um, at that point that I, I needed something bigger. I really needed some serious help. And I asked my therapist, what is my diagnosis exactly? And she said complex PTSD. And that, um, when I started looking up complex PTSD, there was very little information on it because it is still not in the DSM, even though it's recognized by the NHS, the World Health Organization, the VA. Um, and there was certainly no first-person stories about it. And so that's why I told myself if, I mean, I was a producer at This American Life, first-person stories were whole, my whole jam. So I was like, this is kind of important. If I'm able to heal from this, I would like to write about my own story for others. You often see in very high-performing people, you know, levels of depression and anxiety and just assume that that is a part of their story and their journey. But what you just mentioned was getting this diagnosis when you were 30 years old, after years of working with this particular therapist, trusting them. And you, you mentioned in the book, even after you moved across country, continuing this relationship with this therapist and then getting this complex disorder diagnosis. And I wondered in reading it and having you share your experience, you know, was it a relief? to finally get this diagnosis to say, okay, this is something larger than I may have understood? Or did getting that diagnosis prompt even more uncertainty and confusion about what is this and how do I navigate through? Yeah, I think, you know, I've actually heard from a lot of people that it can be a great relief to discover this. And um, PTSD is one of the only diagnoses that um, says that what is happening to you is happening because of your experience and from outside influence. But for me, just reading the very pathologizing, depressing list of symptoms um, and reading the very bleak case studies that were available about complex PTSD, um, I felt hopeless. I felt there's no way out. And the fact that there was no other stories of healing made me think there's no way out. I'm sort of doomed to be to suffer from, for, from this for the rest of my life, um, which I eventually found out is not true at all. Um, there was just a real dearth of information available on the internet. But, you know, I, I think this is a very stigmatized condition. And I think lots of therapists don't know how to deal with it, don't know how to heal it and are intimidated by it, quite frankly. Um, which again is why I thought it was so important to put another narrative out there. You put another narrative out there, but you also made it clear that you were still working through this, working mm. through what this means for you and really recognizing and affirming how other people continue to work through. What was the decision to not only share your journey and your experience, but to put it into a book? Because I imagine that that then evokes all of these other considerations about how in telling my journey, sharing my truth, how does that liberate others? And in some ways, how does it indict others? So what was the decision to put this into a memoir? Honestly, um, people are always like, oh, you're so brave, wasn't, wasn't putting your story out there kind of scary. And honestly, it wasn't really. Um, or... At the time, I didn't, maybe I was too stupid to know what to be afraid of. <laughs> um, I just thought, this is important. This is so important. There needs to be 
something out there that gives people hope. Because when I came into this, there was no, again, there was no hope. There was only despair. Um, and I thought the only way to to get to that place is to share my sort of brutal story, including some of the ways complex PTSD made my life very difficult. I also kind of, when I got diagnosed, I quit my dream job at This American Life and I sort of dedicated my life to healing. But I I felt like, well, I burned down my whole life anyway. <laughs> I have nothing to lose by putting out this book. And I only have the possibility of helping other people gain something. So in that sense, it it wasn't that scary to me. It sounds like in some ways writing this book helped affirm that you were fearless, that you had been through so much, that you were working on this journey and sharing your experience and working through that, that, you know, I don't think it was not knowing what to fear, but understanding how fear had manifest in your life to that point. Was it therapeutic and cathartic to write this book, to kind of put together the pieces that maybe you didn't know existed before or how they lined up? How was this a part of your therapeutic journey? Uh, just to continue what you were saying from before, I think, yeah, and I think another aspect of not being afraid is that in my healing journey, I came to realize that there was nothing to be ashamed of of having complex PTSD. And there was nothing to be ashamed of in terms of what my parents did to me. That was not my fault. Um, and just to go off your the second half of that question, um, I really don't think that writing was cathartic. And I honestly don't think it necessarily should be. I think um, it was really important for me to start writing from a place of healing of being healed. Um, that didn't mean that I wasn't sourcing a lot of my material from my book, from journal entries that I had throughout my healing journey, but I really wanted to come to a place of where I was writing with acceptance and full um, love for myself and my journey so that I could take really good care of the people that were reading it. Um, so yeah, the, the healing was the healing. <laughs> that was the cathartic part was like going to all like, you know, dozens of different kinds of therapies and really sitting with my pain and, you know, doing psychedelics and EMDR and talk therapy. All of that uh, was the healing. The writing was just work. That was journalist Stephanie Fu, author of What My Bones Know, a memoir of healing from complex trauma. When we return, Stephanie talks about how trauma that her family experienced in Malaysia, even before she was born, still impacts her today. This is Disrupted. Stay with us. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. 
The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Today we're talking to Stephanie Fu, author of What My Bones Know, a memoir of healing from complex trauma. A note to our listeners, this episode contains discussions of trauma, abuse, and mental health. You show such extreme care for your reader from the first page of the book, of inviting people in, of naming how challenging it may be to work through some of those pieces. But what I love is that in that caution, in that bringing the reader in, you say this is a story with a happy ending. And one of the pieces that comes through the book, Stephanie, is for those who've experienced complex trauma, you know, multiple traumatic experiences, series of abuse, there's often this feeling of isolation, that I'm the only one who has ever experienced this, or no one else is like me. And you come through some places in the book where you point that out. Were there particular moments when you realize that yes, your particular situation may have been different from others or may not have been as different as you thought growing up in terms of that feeling of isolation and not being able to break through? I think it's actually the the book's existence in the world that has really affirmed that the most because I probably get a dozen messages every single day um, from people saying, you put to words what I have felt my whole life. Um you get it, you read my mind, you know? And for me, at the beginning of my journey, feeling so lonely to to seeing all of these messages and knowing like we are not alone at all. We are this big loving community um, that has so many similar hurts. It, it definitely makes me realize that we are not freakish at all. We're not alone having these these insecurities, these feelings, and that there's a large population, an enormous population of people that have been hurt in the same way that really need specialized trauma assistance therapy. We need help to move on. And I, I don't feel like the American mental health care system is serving us and acknowledging that need. And acknowledging that the needs vary, that it's not a Mm -hmm. one-size-fit-all for people, and also understanding that those needs vary across the lifespan of a person who Mm -hmm. needs help and is reaching out and may not be sure. Yeah, there's not one, like you start healing and then you get to the therapy and then that's it and then you're done. The process continues throughout the whole life with every new challenge. I'm curious about something you just said about being a part of this community and seeing just how many people are out there and having the outreach that comes to you daily of having this book living out the world and bringing people into community and conversation who may have felt isolated. Is there a weight or responsibility that you feel attached to that? Or do you feel like this is a moment for you to just be? to just be in community without feeling like you have to fix everything for everyone? 
I think that going into this, I, I did go in setting healthy boundaries. There are some times when people ask me for like medical advice and I'm like, I, I would love to help you, but I can't. Um, so, and I think that there is honestly, I think a lot of people write to me or review my book and say, just like, I hope she's okay. I really want her to be happy. Um, and so I think there is sort of an added pressure or obligation to take really good care of myself because again, the healing is never going to end. And everybody knows that everybody, all of my readers know that like, I'm always going to struggle. Um, I'm very clear about that in the book, but I, I think that prioritizing my mental health, um, and really trying hard to forgive myself, to be kind to myself and to be okay <laughs> is is um is kind of a pressure but i think it's good i think it's wonderful in some way that like everyone i know everyone's rooting for me and um it's good to have that sense of responsibility in some ways I think it's wonderful to hear you talk about being okay and understanding that the the real definition of being okay is such a personal one. It's mm -hmm. not one that is often built on the markers that society would tell us are about being okay. The other thing that comes through that, Stephanie, is this real mind-body-spirit connection that you talk about in the book. And the title of the book appears in chapter 31 in, in your lines. I want to have words for what my bones know. I want to use those gifts when they serve me and understand and forgive them when they do not. Mm -hmm. Why use that as the title of the book and understanding what your bones know and affirming what that knowing is? Yeah, I think because, you know, I write a lot in the book about intergenerational trauma and my family came from Malaysia they were Malaysian Chinese, and they saw a lot of horrible things over World War II, the Malayan emergency. My family really struggled to survive. Um, and I think a lot of my hypervigilance and the unhealthy coping mechanisms that are only unhealthy during peacetime, but were that actually helped keep my ancestors alive, you know, those are encoded in my literal genes. And I talked a little bit about how being okay for me is being able to forgive myself more, being easier on myself. And a big part of why my trauma sits lighter on my shoulders now is because I understand that it is not just my trauma and it's not just me or my responsibility. It exists within this much larger framework, historical, political, capitalistic. I mean, we exist in a traumatizing society. I'm an immigrant. I'm a person of color who existed through very, very traumatizing sociopolitical events, you know? And um, I think it's really important to recognize that we, we have, we do have agency in the way that we try and approach each day, but in some ways we don't have agency for our genes, our trauma responses, the world that we have come into. And it's okay to sort of surrender a little bit of that and understand 
not everything is our fault. Not everything is within our control. That's okay. We're doing the best we can. Sounds then like it's a sense of liberation to understand there are the things that we can control and there are the things that are beyond our control. And the many ways in which we sort of blame ourselves don't extend grace to ourselves to understand there are things that we inherit. And many of us are just trying to do the best that we can to make it through. But what I also hear in that, Stephanie, is this sort of search for understanding of Mm -hmm. what your family had endured, what they saw, what brought them to the United States, and also shaped the very high expectations that they had for you and for others here in the States, but also trying to fight against this very real stereotype about what an American family was supposed to be and Mm -hmm. how you do that, given the coming there. Do you feel like walking through this journey of, of writing the book, understanding your family's history, in sort of a, a global sense, because all these things were connected, do you feel like it, it gave you a, more of a sense of understanding, not acceptance in any way, but of understanding that when people are facing such bleak and extreme inhumanity, it can manifest even when we think they should know better? Yeah, absolutely. It, it definitely did give me a more holistic understanding. And I think it's really important that you said not necessarily acceptance, because I think, you know, a side effect of complex PTSD can be rage. Um, and some of that is shamed or put down. And some of it is, you know, it's inappropriate at times, for sure. Um, but I think that sort of an anti-colonialist rage that we have or an anti-racist rage that we have sometimes as people of color um, in this world, I've come to sort of embrace that rage a little bit and just be like, there are things to be pissed about and that's okay. (laughs) And, um, And just holding all of that, the joy, the rage, the sadness, the grief, the disappointment, and having it all have a balanced place in one's life, I think is really important. And one of the most, the greatest lessons I've learned from this journey. My therapist calls this the ability to have multiple buckets of emotion and Mm -hmm. to understand that sometimes you draw on certain buckets more than others, but that they're always present. And when you can lean into them always being present, it gives you a sense to work through where you are. You have talked about being a person of color in the United States and how that also shapes some of the rage, but also the opportunities that we have to express the rage and for our rage to be understood and valued and not just dismissed. The other thing that you talk about in this book is gender. And the ways in which PTSD and CPTSD are often understood as a male condition, Mm. because we often Mm. think of, you know, men returning from war after seeing all of this and experiencing that. Talk to us more about how you think that connection between gender and our understanding of trauma plays out in this dynamic. Yeah, I think it speaks to our sexist society, you know, that like, that we only began to acknowledge and begin to study trauma when men started coming back with shell shock um, after World War One, right? Um, and that's when we started to give it a name to justify it, to make it 
okay to be traumatized. But I mean, women have been horrifically abused for millennia, as we know, and the reactions to that were called hysteria, right? It wasn't called, wow, post-traumatic stress disorder is called hysteria. And even now we, you know, soldiers are a fraction of a percent of America's population. And yet we assign PTSD to, to them. Whereas there's so many women who've been sexually abused with PTSD. I mean, there are studies that say that women are more likely to have PTSD than men. Um, not to mention, I mean, this isn't gendered, but all of the child abuse that happens in the United States, which is millions and millions of children, um, or children who are suffering from having incarcerated parents, or, and again, none of this is gendered. We don't talk about it. Why don't we talk about the very real pain of childhood trauma instead of weirdly glorifying this masculinized violent, glorious war trauma. You know what I mean? When it's this other population that's suffering is so much more vulnerable and and the pain can be just as dangerous, just as long lasting, can have just as many like deleterious effects like, you know, suicidal tendencies. So, um, and maybe that's because like children are seen in the realm of the woman and, Again, there's another sexist element there. I'm not sure, but um, I definitely think that this narrative is changing and needs to change. And Judith Herman, who wrote Trauma and Recovery, by the way, just wrote a fantastic book all about this. She talks about it way better than I do. I think what I appreciate you saying too is it's a reminder, Stephanie, that often the people who were the targets of that rage, that even if we're talking mm. about people coming back from combat, even the people who were the targets of that rage were often women and children who were in right. a very vulnerable situation because they were in the home. And mm -hmm. when you feel that society has denied your agency and your power, you often lash out against those closest to you. Again, not about excusing anything, but about understanding just how prevalent this abuse right. is in ways that we don't talk about, in ways that we often don't realize that there may be people in our circle, in our family who are going through this, through this. One of the other elements of research that you include in the book is about the impact of racism on the brains of people mm. of color and that relationship then between race and trauma and the ways that people function through Talk to us a little about how you bring that element into understanding complex PTSD. Yeah. So, you know, complex PTSD, again, is repeated trauma over and over and over. Racial trauma is obviously something very real that happens to people of color. Um, you know, if you're continuously followed in stores, if you're continuously seeing images of Black people being shot by police on TV, if you have um, difficult interactions with law enforcement yourself or teachers or people in positions of authority who are um, gaslighting you or minimizing you because of the way that you speak or the way that you operate in in a an office because it is not, you know, white enough. Um I think all of that over time can be very traumatizing. And Negarfani, um, a 
um, neuroscientist in Atlanta um, did some actual studies where she scanned the brains of black women and who had undergone a lot of racist microaggressions and saw changes in their brain that seemed consistent with the brains of people who had complex PTSD. Um, which I don't know, that's a really interesting correlation. <laughs> so again, our vigilance, our fear, it doesn't just exist in our heads, this manifestation that's just coming out, making us crazy. It is the result of our environments, of our societies, of our histories. Coming up, journalist and author Stephanie Fu talks about the lack of access to culturally responsive mental health care here in the U.S. This is Disrupted. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This hour, we're talking with journalist Stephanie Fu about her book, What My Bones Know, a memoir of healing from complex trauma. A note to our listeners, this episode contains discussions of trauma, abuse, mental health, gun violence, and police violence. This interview was recorded on Friday, January 27th. Our convo happened just hours before the video of Tyree Nichols' murder was released. You know, as we are having this conversation, the city of Memphis is on the verge of releasing video uh, in the, the death, the murder of a young Black man who was killed by five former police officers. And as I'm listening to you talk about these repeated exposures, I go to that in terms of thinking about how seeing that kind of footage not only evokes fear, but connects to this trauma that is embedded in our bones, that memory that connects to experience and how that experience in some ways is different, but how it's experienced by people based on their groupings. And in the book, you talk about at one point, you know, talking to a social worker and a therapist in your high school and how the trauma that students like you in high school at that time and, and today continuing how that trauma often gets overlooked because of stereotypes and myths about their groups and their memberships. Why do you think trauma for particular groups, particular communities gets overlooked within that experience? Racism. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, uh, um, yeah, that's the simple answer. I mean, you know, why, do black women die at higher rates while going through childbirth? Um, why do doctors tend to minimize black pain um, and think it isn't as legitimate? I mean, I think it's sort of the same thing. I mean, that is medicalized, isn't it? And it's the same thing in the mental health sphere is um, I don't think it's overt racism a lot of the time, but I think that it can be, um, sort of unconscious bias. Um, and I think, I think people really, in order to recognize that as real, perhaps counterintuitively, 
I believe that everyone should really look into their own trauma and recognize and look that in the face because, you know, we are mostly immigrants here in this country. And for example, like the Jennifer Mullen in Decolonized Therapy writes a lot about um, the Irish potato famine and how Irish people in this country come with a lot of trauma and starvation and alcoholism and difficulty around that. And I think white people and black people, everyone sort of needs to recognize, again, that we live in a traumatizing society as a whole that doesn't that that hurts all of us in its difficult systems and its capitalist systems and its violent systems. Um, and being able to look at it through a holistic lens truly allows us to see that we are we all carry trauma with us in some way, shape, or form. Obviously, some of us carry heavier bags than others. But trauma is not a disorder. I, I mean, PTSD, even the name of it in some ways, sort of turns me off because we're not freakish for having this. Um, being traumatized is is not freakish. It, it's, it's a survival mechanism. And all of us possess that to a certain degree. And we need to recognize that within ourselves. And only when we recognize it in ourselves in the way that it affects us, can we, I think, have true empathy for others. I think that empathy is also important that we not just try to lump people together in these sort of big markers of groups, but understanding the ways in which different communities, different countries of origin, different family configurations, how all of that can often magnify not just the traumatic experience, but who we think is entitled to heal. And mm. often in the U.S., you know, oh, this person did very well. It must right. be okay. They've recovered from that. Not ever acknowledging what it takes to get there and how fragile mm -hmm. that sense of security can be. Right. You recently made a post on Instagram reacting to the mass shootings in California mm. and connecting that into, you know, this understanding of trauma, repeated exposure, and the mm -hmm. ways in which these current events can be triggers to what right. people have gone through. Talk to us a little about that. Yeah, I mean, it's not surprising to me that the, the, peop, the shooters were, I mean, when I saw 70-year-old Vietnamese man, the first thing I thought was, okay, so peak Vietnam War trauma. Um, when I saw, you know, 62-year-old Chinese man, I thought, okay, Chinese Cultural Revolution. Um, and I know for coming from a Vietnamese Chinese community, I know men like that. I know how deeply they struggle with mental illness. I know so many families that have suffered from like very real domestic abuse because of these men who are traumatized, men and women who are traumatized by horrific global events and who never received treatment for it because um, the therapy in this country is made for white educated rich people because it's not accessible. 
it's not destigmatized in so many communities. Um, and if you think about it, going into a therapist's office and talking for an hour about the worst things that happen to you once a week, going to a doctor's office and, and talk, saying that to a stranger is a very unnatural, weird way of interacting that most people in this world would not consider, would not think about. And that's, again, because we have created a form of therapy that is very intellectualized. Um, and so in the community that I grew up in, all of these Asian American survivors, of course, none of them were getting therapy. None of them. And I have seen how culturally responsive, destigmatized, community-based therapy actually does work, where it's a lot of it is not even um, billed as therapy. It's billed as a sewing group or a community group or a men's group or something like that. And people come together and they talk and they make friends. And I know one therapist in San Jose, Bo Paul Penn, I did a, a story on him for Invisibilia, who would literally just drive his clients around and translate for them for literally two years before he began asking them about their trauma because first he was making friends with them, which is so much more of a natural way of how you would interact with somebody, open up to them, be vulnerable with them, right? And if we had that kind of care in this country, I think that there would be so much less violence in communities of color, in Asian American communities, in black communities. Um, because people would be getting the healing that they needed. But of course, that's hard. That's difficult. That's weird. That's That breaks the laws and understandings of the Freudian fancy therapy that we have built for ourselves over eons. And so we don't do it. And again, that's racist. Um, especially, you know, the Asian community has gone through so much and in the past couple of years Asian elders have gone through so much and they're buying guns to protect themselves because of the amount of hate crimes that are happening. I mean, not to excuse the shooters, any mass shooters, they must be held accountable for what they did. But I think if you want to decrease violence, again, we all live in a society. We have to address the societal issues. We do that with by addressing the trauma. I think we're often very reactionary in this country. And what you're naming is the need to see how context, how experience, how in some ways the collective trauma, not just the complex trauma, but the collective trauma that many communities are enduring and have endured for so long, how it manifests in all of these ways. And as you were talking, I was thinking that what you are really calling for is a break from the cultural stigma that says, you keep house business in the house. You mm. don't talk about your problems. You don't name your pain because mm -hmm. that makes you vulnerable. And in fact, it is a way of liberating oneself from that norm and understanding the shame is not yours to hold. As we come to the conclusion of our time together, I want to go back to where you start in the book, where you say, this is a story with a happy ending. What is mm -hmm. it that you want people to take away from reading your book? The primary thing is just hope. Um, 
destigmatization, the understanding that people with complex PTSD have their own talents and they have their own flaws. Certainly, we all know that, but we have our special abilities too. Our our eerie calm in in really dangerous situations. Our resilience, our tremendous empathy and healing abilities, um, and that there is so much hope for loving and being loved in community despite having complex PTSD, being able to trust others with the right help. And it's our responsibility as a society to fight for that help being more accessible. Thank you for reminding us that we all deserve hope and healing. Stephanie Fu is journalist and author of the book, What My Bones Know, a memoir of healing from complex trauma. Thank you, Stephanie. Thanks so much. Really appreciate it. If you or someone you know is struggling, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration Helpline is 1-800-622-HELP. That's 1-800-622-4357. Disrupted is produced by Kevin Chang Barnum, Wayne Edwards, Emily Cherish, Meg Dalton, and Katie Tularski. You can listen to all the previous episodes of Disrupted by finding us wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Disrupted and Connecticut Public. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Thanks for listening. <laughs>